The sermon text for today's sermon is Psalm 51. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Father, grant that your people would move in to Psalm 51, live there, learn there, feel there, find healing there, be broken there. Lord, do this psalm among us, all of it. There are so many, Lord, who are closed-lipped with their praises and their testimony, like David was, and he was pleading, open my lips, unseal my lips. Lord, do a great lip unsealing at depths of heart work that we never dreamed. So come, do exceedingly more for your people in these services across these three campuses than any of us expected to happen. Let there be salvation of 
lost people here. Let there be the upbuilding of your church. Let there be the unifying of the alienated. Let there be the healing of the sick. Let there be the contrite courage and the broken-hearted boldness of the timid and more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Last week we focused on Psalm 42 and how to be discouraged well. And today we focus on Psalm 51 and how to be crushed with guilt well. I hope that you're detecting a pattern that the Christian life is not the avoidance of these things, but how one lives in them well or not. What makes a person a Christian is not that he doesn't get discouraged or not that he doesn't sin and feel rotten about it. That's not what makes a Christian. What makes a Christian is the connection that discouraged people and sinful, guilt-ridden people have with Jesus and how they think and feel about their discouragements and their guilt-ridden consciences. That's what makes a person a Christian. So we're moving in inside the Psalms to learn how to think and feel about our oppression and our guilt feelings and our sins and our discouragements. So I hope you're getting a pattern here. You don't become a Christian with the expectation, no more discouragement in my life and no more sin and no more bad, crushed feelings. If you think that's what happens in church, then you're the wrong one. The Psalms were the songbook, the main songbook of the early church and were designed by God to awaken and to express and to shape the thinking and the feeling of Jesus' disciples. We learn from the Psalms how to think about discouragement, and how to think about guilt and sin. And we learn from the Psalms how to feel in times of discouragement and how to feel in times of guilt-ridden crushed misery. So my prayer in these six weeks of psalm living is that you would form the habit with me of living in the, in the psalms so much that the world of your thinking and the world of your feeling would be transformed into full-blooded biblical thinking and full-blooded biblical feeling. When you're discouraged and when you're guilt-ridden and 
We'll be picking out a few other emotions in the next three weeks. Psalm 51 is one of the few psalms that are pinpointed as to where they came from and why. So look at the heading with me. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, the story of David and Bathsheba is pretty well known, but you need to hear the crisp, simple, straightforward account from 2 Samuel 11. Let me just read it to you. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from a roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So... David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned home, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So straightforward, so unembellished. He tries to cover his sin immediately by calling Uriah, the husband, home from the battlefield to get him into the house to go to bed with her to have sex so that he'll think it's his child. Didn't work. Uriah is a man of great character. He will not have sex with his wife while his comrades are on the field there and their life down for the kingdom and the king. So, David arranges to have him killed so that he can quickly marry her so that it will look like it was a legitimately conceived baby. One sin on top of another. God sends Nathan to David. Not an easy job. 2 Samuel 11, at the end, (laughs) this is perhaps the most understated sentence in the Bible. This is 2 Samuel 11, 27. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So Nathan arrives and tells him a parable. The point of this parable is to lure David in to indict himself, which he does very effectively, condemns himself without knowing it. And Nathan says, you are the man in the parable. 
He also says to David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? David breaks and says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, astonishingly, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is to be born to you shall die. Now, this is outrageous. This is absolutely outrageous, what God is doing here. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is raped. The baby will die. Deceit is everywhere. And just like that, God says, I have taken away your sin. I'll pass over your sin. Just like that. This is outrageous. No judge who is righteous can do this. Rape, murder, deceit, a baby dead. And he just passes over. Now, the outrage that we feel when this happens would be justified except for one thing. I was witnessing, trying to anyway, to four guys on the street for about 20 minutes last week. And you know where it ended? They could not get beyond my affirmation to one of their questions that God could forgive a child molester. They said, no way! No way! And it was over. I couldn't get through. There is something in the human soul that is outraged that in your mind you picked the worst sin for them. This was it. A guy that gets turned on by babies, they wanted to spit in his face. And here I am on the street trying to say something about the cross and the possibility that that person might find forgiveness with God and they would not have it. And I totally resonate with how they feel, which is why I get so bent out of shape when I read this story. Just passes over. I mean, what if you were Uriah's dad? Bathsheba's mom. And the king just pulls his raping rank. And God just passes over. So, you know, and until you feel that, then the way that problem is solved in the Bible won't move you. It just won't. Most... People in America, it seems, 
think, when they're not thinking about situations like this, that God owes them forgiveness. And it's a piece of cake. I'm not so bad. I'm surely no child molester. And, ah, we've got this figured out. That's not the problem Paul struggled with. Paul struggled precisely with my problem. How can God be righteous and just pass over? That's the word used there in this text. So here's Paul's solution. Romans 3.25. This, this sentence in Romans 3.25 and 26 is probably the most important sentence in the Bible on how Christ relates to the Psalms or Christ relates to all of the Old Testament. Okay, I'm going to read it to you. Maybe the most important sentence in the Bible. This is Romans 3.25. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. That means a wrath-removing sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show that God is righteous. That's why he died. He died to prove God is righteous. Because, here's my problem being solved. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over, same word. He had passed over former sins. You bet he did, and it's outrageous that he did, unless this works. So if you're an unbeliever in this room right now, and you, f- you feel some of this outrage, then know that, that your forgiveness is at stake. Can you be forgiven? Can I be forgiven without God being unrighteous in passing over my sin? And Paul's answer is, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show, Christ died to show, God's righteousness at the present time so that he could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, though he be adulterer, murder, liar, child molester. If that doesn't work, I'm out of here. Christianity is over if that doesn't work. That's the heart of Christianity. God put Christ forward to make it possible for a judge at a bench to pass over rape, murder, lying, and child-complicit killing and still be a just judge. If that doesn't work, nothing works. And there's nothing but horrible injustices in the world that will never be set right. But if that works, we've got the best news in all the world for the worst people in all the world, including ourselves. So he does not sweep David's adultery, David's murder, and David's lying. He does not sweep it under the rug. God, now this is why I said that sentence is the most important for understanding the relationship to the Old Testament. God in the Old Testament looked upon the faith of a David in the inexplicable, mysterious mercy of God towards sinners, looked 
into the opaque future of a coming redemption somehow. We know how, but he didn't know fully how. And God looked upon that faith as uniting him with the coming Christ so that the atonement of that Christ and the righteousness of that Christ may be counted as David's and all David's sin covered by Jesus a thousand years before he died. That's the way I understand the Old Testament because that's the way Romans 3, 25 and 26 work. You find a psalm like this, you find the gospel, if you have eyes to see. The death of the Son of God is outrageous enough, and the glory of God that it upholds is great enough that God is vindicated in passing over adultery, murder, lying, and you if you're in Christ. The death of the Son of God is outrageous enough to cover the outrage of a million, million sinners. That's what these guys on the street couldn't get. I couldn't get it through. Jesus wasn't important enough to them. His death didn't seem that big, that horrible, that outrageous, that it could cover the forgiveness of a child molester is why the Bible talks about a veil hanging over people's eyes and the cross being foolishness. I hope it's not true for anybody in this room. Now that's the objective reality behind this psalm. But the psalm is the description of the subjective experience of appropriating that objective reality. Christ's work, Christ's blood, Christ's righteousness, Christ's oath, Christ's magnificent covering of all the sins of all of God's people, past, present, and future, is the objective reality that makes mercy possible for David. But, oh, how do you get that? How do you appropriate that? How do you live under that when you feel so horrid for your terrible? Sin. That's what this psalm is about. And that's why it's so unbelievably relevant to us where we find ourselves in our thinking and our feeling about our guilt. Once for all, Christ died, purchased forgiveness, provided righteousness. We can add nothing to it. The purchase was perfect. The provision of righteousness, complete We share in forgiveness. We share in righteousness by faith alone. David too. Abraham, faith alone. They share in the righteousness of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ. Nevertheless, in view of the holiness of God and the evil of sin, it is fitting that we appropriate what was purchased for us every day. And that's what this psalm is about. There's a lot of people who turn Christianity into kind of mechanical thing. I prayed my prayer when I was six or 16. I prayed my prayer, and everything else is mechanical after that. 
kind of assume. It's done. There's no wrestling. There's no struggling. There's no grasping. There's no grappling. There's no pleading. There's no psalms like these we've been singing here. They're just breezing along like it's all a machine. <laughs> you can't read the psalms and feel like these guys are machines. They're not machines. It is fitting. Jesus said, pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Daily requests for bread because he has promised to meet every need. Daily appropriation of forgiveness because it is fully purchased and secured. Not since it is fully purchased and secured. You don't need to ask for it. Be a machine. Watch TV. You're safe. Psalm 51 is the way people think and feel about the horrors of their sin if they're born again. If you're not born again, you're probably not too worked up about your sin. I will try to guide you through four of David's responses now. That's what we're going to do. The structure of this message from here on out is four ways David responded to his misery and his sin. Number one, he turns to his only hope, helpless, the mercy and the love of God. He turns there. Verse one, have mercy, first thing out of his mouth, mercy, on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Three times, have mercy according to your steadfast mercy, according to your abundant love. That's what God had promised back in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. <laughs> David knew there are guilty who would not be forgiven. And there are guilty who by some mysterious work of God would not have their guilt counted against them. And he's struggling to be one of those. Today, we know a lot more about the mystery of redemption than David did because we're on this side of the cross. We know Christ is our mercy. Christ is the foundation of our mercy. We have four Gospels. Oh, how you should read the Gospels every day just to see Him. He's your life. He's the ground of everything. We just need to see him. We need to get a glimpse of him every day. How did he talk? How did he think? How did he feel? How did he act? Don't neglect him. He's everything. He's the bodily incarnation of the mercy of God on which our lives hang. That's number one. He turns helpless to the mercy of God. He is a supplicant of mercy. He has nothing to claim this sinner. 
except mercy from God. If God's mercy doesn't work for him, he's a goner. Number two, he prays for cleansing from sin. Verse two, he prays for cleansing. So the first thing, he turns to mercy. And the second thing, when he's there, he asks that God would, in mercy, cleanse him from his sin. Verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a branch that was used by the priest, dipped in blood, and used for several things. One of the things it was used for was to walk through a house that had had some cancerous growth in it, and they didn't know what it was. And it was, when, when the house proved to be clean, they would daub it and signify by the dipping of the blood, it's clean now. You can go back in the house and live there without getting some horrible disease. And, and David, I think, is saying, God, I, no human priest is going to work right now. I, I like priests, but... If you don't become my priest here and, and take this hyssop and dub the blood on me, I am lost. It's fitting that Christians ask God to do this. 1 John 1, 7. Christ has purchased forgiveness. He has paid the full price. That doesn't replace our asking. <laughs> you may think, that's why are you saying that? Because I bump into so many Christians who think Christians shouldn't ask for forgiveness. We're already forgiven. Paid for by the blood of Jesus. Why would you ask him to wash you? The cross is not the reason we don't ask. The cross is the basis of our confidence that the answer will be yes. Daily. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Number three, David confesses at least five ways that his sin is extremely serious. Now, here it starts to get amazing. Those two points, duh. But now... It really gets strange. Here's where living in the Psalms starts to change you. If you only read things after which you said, duh, you stop reading in a hurry. Because you already know, you already feel the way you should. But if you start bumping into things that seem weird, strange, then you better live there. You just better camp there until your brain and your heart get shaped by the strange things. And... David belabors the intensification of the guilt of his sin. I said to the people in the prayer room downstairs, I said, My, I'm wired to do the opposite. You, you finger me for something I've said or something I've done that's wrong. I'm going to find a way to make light of it. I'm going to make it less than you think it is. There are all kinds of extenuating circumstances, etc., etc. We are wired to defend ourselves. And David goes in exactly the opposite direction. So let's look at these five ways that he underlines the seriousness of his sin. Number one, he says, I can't get it out of my mind. Verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever 
before me. You got one of those from 30 years ago? The tape keeps playing. The video keeps playing. And I can't make it stop playing. Neither could David. Your sin, my sin, there, there. It's always there. It's there when I get up. It's there when I go to bed. He didn't have to say that. Number two. The exceeding sinfulness of his sin is that it was a sin. It was sin only against God. Verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. Really? Nathan had said to David... Why have you despised the word of God? Why have you scorned the Lord? David picks up on that focus. The point here is not that Bathsheba wasn't hurt, Uriah wasn't hurt, the baby wasn't hurt, the kingdom wasn't hurt, all of his heirs weren't hurt. That's not the point. The point is what makes sin sin is that it's against God. Sin, by definition, is against God. That's what sin is. We hurt people. We sin against God. The meaning of sin in the Bible is, I've offended God, I've assaulted God, I've belittled God. And that's what he's saying. I've hurt Bathsheba big time. I've killed Uriah. The baby's dead on my account. My heirs are always going to have a sword. Look what happened. Absalom. Adonijah, I just weep when I look at the record of this man's life. Because I've got sons. I don't want an Absalom. I don't want an Adonijah among my sons. Nothing would be more heartbreaking, wouldn't it? And that's all an outcropping of this horrible thing. So, his second way of intensifying his sin is to say sin is sin because it's against God. Number three, David vindicates God and not himself. There's no self-justification. There's no self-defense. There's no escape. Verse four at the second half of the verse. So that you may be, so that you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. A born-again guilt-ridden person confesses with emotional credibility, I deserve to be damned and God damning me would be just. Period. That's what born-again people feel about the way they treat their spouses. Feel about their failure with their kids. Feel about the little white lies I heard talked about on NPR this afternoon. How do you feel? Is sin light thing to you? Or is the gap between your godliness and God's holiness so great that you know if God sent you to hell, he would have done the exactly right thing and he would be blameless in his judgment? 
So David is simply drawing attention to the fact, if I am saved by mercy, God will have gone way beyond what I deserve. Number four, finally, after turning helpless to the mercy of God, that's number one. Number two, praying for forgiveness and cleansing. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm starting to give you point four when I haven't finished number three yet. I've got got a number five under number three, and I skipped it. I don't want to skip it. David admits that he didn't just sin against an external law. He sinned against light in his own heart. And I see that's number five, and I didn't give you number four. (laughs) But I'll give you number five, and then I'll do number four. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The point there is, I've got in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, and I've got in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, and got in the Ten Commandments, you shall not lie. And of course, I've sinned by failing to live up to those words from God. But this text says, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David was wise. He had done so many wise things. God had been his teacher. God had led him in so many ways. His life had been blessed. And that made his sin all the more horrible. That's why James 3 says, Let not many of you become pastors and teachers, because the judgment of us who spend all of our time in the Bible is going to be way stricter than with you. I was thinking about that with my wife today. Every time I get mad at my wife, I have to remind myself, I study the Bible a lot more than Noel does. Therefore, even my slightest dishonoring words are more guilty than hers. Number four, that was five, this is four. You can number them any way you want. I'm giving you, this is the last one under number three, that he intensifies his guilt in these ways. So here it is. He draws attention to his inborn corruption, verse 5. His inborn corruption. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, lots of people take that truth to lessen their sin, not intensify it. I'm just this way. Big sex drive, bent towards lying. Never was, you know, I never liked soldiers very much anyway. And therefore, my acting on those impulses is not as guilty as if I didn't have them. That's a lot of baloney. It is the depth of our corruption that intensifies and makes worse our behavior is because we're just going to do it all over the place unless that innate corruption isn't somehow crucified and subdued. That's the end of point number three. David doesn't step back and minimize his sin in those five ways. He intensifies his guilt, which is simply amazing to me. Oh, how much healing there is that way. Seems like the opposite. You can make life worse for yourself by calling up all these horrible conditions that make you feel more guilty because I would not be healed lightly. 
Last point, number four, is uh, David, this is his fourth way of responding to his sin. Um, The first way was he turns helpless to God's mercy. Second way, he prays for forgiveness and cleansing. Third way, he confesses the depth and greatness of his sin and corruption. Now, here's the, the fourth thing that he does. He pleads for renewal. David wants more than forgiveness, way more. I hope you do. This is why those guys on the street couldn't buy it. The only construction they had of the gospel, and I couldn't break them in 20 minutes, was, you forgive him, he just could keep doing it. The idea that when a person is born again and forgiven of sins, they are passionately committed to being changed by God. And that's what the rest of this sermon is about. David manifests six passionate ways that he's committed to being changed. By God. The mark of being forgiven is a passion to be changed. The mark of the new birth is a passion to be changed. I worry about Christians who are not passionate to be changed. I worry about them. I don't settle that they're not Christian. Life is too complex for that. It's not my call. But I worry about them. I see no evidence of a passion to be changed, be changed, be changed, passive voice, God actor. Number one, here are the ways that he, he does this. He manifests this passion. He pleads with God to confirm his election. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence, And take not your Holy Spirit from me. I know a lot of people today say Christians shouldn't pray like that. And when we sang it, I wonder if some of you didn't say, I can't sing that. It sounds like you can lose your salvation. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. I think we should pray like that. Christians. Sovereign, grace, election-loving Christians who are totally secure in Christ Jesus because of the finished work of Christ and believe in eternal security with all their might should pray like this. This is strange. I admit it. Why? What What do we mean? What do you mean when you as a Christian or David as a secure son of God, prays, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. I I don't go the path of saying he only meant the kingly anointing. I doubt it. I doubt that's all he meant. What I think he means and I should mean and you should mean is don't treat me as one who is not chosen. Don't let me prove to be like one of those in Hebrews 6 who has only tasted the powers of the age to come and only sipped at the Holy Spirit and is not taken and owned and indwelt by the Spirit. 
Don't let me fall away and show that I was only drawn by the Spirit, but not held by the Spirit. Confirm to me, O God, that I am your child and will never fall away. What do you think it means in 2 Peter 1.9 when it says, Confirm your calling and your election? We're not machines. I prayed my prayer. I'm just grinding out artificial life. No way. I believe with all my heart I'm a child of God. I survived that way, that the blood of Jesus covers me from all my sin. And righteousness has been imputed to me and will never be taken from me. I believe that. If you would ask me, you believe in eternal security, the cross is everything that you need? I say, absolutely, I believe that. And the way I live and stay in that confidence is praying this prayer. If you think that's a contradiction, then don't pray it. It is not a contradiction for me. It's the way I live. When I bow down before the Lord, I say, oh God, forbid that I would ever drift into playing around with the Internet that I would ever drift into loving money, that I would ever drift into loving fame as a writing pastor, forbid that I would ever drift so far that it would start to feel like, look like, and maybe be like I was never elect. Don't ever let me go there. Confirm to me my election. Life is not mechanical to me. It's a battle. And I believe I fight as a winner because the battle has been won for me already. Number two, David prays for a heart and a spirit that are new and right and firm. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That right spirit, the word implies firmness, established, unwavering. He doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to sin. He's pleading with a, for a heart that won't be wrong and go after sin. Number three, he prays for joy in God's salvation and joy in a, a willing heart towards God. Verse eight. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, I want to make now, we'll go quickly. I want to make one of the most amazing observations for me in my study of this psalm. There is not a word about sex in this psalm. Nor is there a word about murder, nor is there a word about lying. And it all started with sex. Or did it? No. Freud may think everything starts with sex. All my problems are sex. Everything got the root down in my gut. The Bible doesn't see it that way. The misuse of the beautiful gift of sex 
is a symptom of a disease, not the disease. And that's why this psalm doesn't mention it. And it's the main issue. Or we thought it was the main issue. It's not the main issue. This is the main issue. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because when that joy fades, I click on pornography. When that joy fades, I start cruising the neighborhood. When that joy fades, I get an itch for another woman. When that joy fades, on and on and on. Every sin on the outside is symptomatic of the absence of this joy. This psalmist knows how to fight. I don't have any problem with us, you know, doing all kinds of things to surround men and women with protections against sexual sin. In fact, I think that's a very good idea. It's just not the main point. If that's where you fight the battle continually, you will never get to the root of the issue. The root of the issue here is this renewed heart, this joy and gladness, the bones that God has broken healed with the joy of our salvation. Number four. A few more minutes. He asked God to bring his joy to the overflow of praise. Verse 15. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Praise is what joy in God does unless there's an obstacle that needs to be removed. And all of you have obstacles. Me too. And what he's praying is that they be removed. Right? Open my lips! Come on, mouth! Get with the soul! Why do I know him? Why do I love him? And I can't... I can't... Say it to my wife. I can't say it to my kids. I can sing in the congregation, but I can't praise him. Why? What's wrong with us? All kinds of obstacles. So join him. Just join him in praying. Open my lips that I may praise you. Number five. He asks that the upshot of all this will be effective evangelism. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David is not content to be forgiven. He's not content to be clean. He's not content to be elect. He's not content to have a right spirit. He's not content to be happy by himself. He will not be content until his brokenness heals others. So many of us think, i got to be totally triumphant to have a witness. This, this makes no sense if that's true. 
He has passed through incredible darkness and horrors morally in his life. And, and now he's saying, if, if you could just give me a taste again of some of the joy that I once knew, all of this would result in conversions. And it will. You think you have so blown it in your life, you cannot be used. That's what many of you think in this room. You have so blown it that you cannot be used to make a difference for Jesus in the world. That's the devil talking. He doesn't want you to make a difference, that's for sure. And one of the reasons he helped drag you down was so that you'd think that way. And one of the reasons this is in the Bible is to nullify that lie. So just join David in pleading, God, I know I've messed up. Oh, have I messed up. I've killed and I've raped and my baby's dead. Would you cause people to come to Christ through my life? Maybe that would be the way the Lord would make evangelism happen in Bethlehem. I'm almost done. This is the last one. Brings us to verse 17, which I used as a title for the sermon. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's underneath everything, isn't it? The foundation of everything is the discovery of God's good pleasure with the broken and contrite heart. Please don't make the mistake. This is one of the things the Psalms help teach us. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that you ever get beyond broken and contrite spirit in this life. Like, that's a season. That's a season. Like, right after a bad sin, got a little season of broken and contrite spirit. And now, later, no broken and contrite spirit. Wrong. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why it's wrong. One is you sin every day. And if you knew how serious it was, like David labors to show how serious it is to himself, then there would be a brokenness and contrition. Now, here's the second mistake I want you to avoid. Avoid thinking that if you always have a broken and contrite heart, you're going to be an unhappy person. That's the devil talking. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing is the banner that flies over this church more than any other banner. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Let me close by reading Jonathan Edwards who wrestled with the feelings and the thinking of the Christian life more than anybody I know. I'll read this and pray. All gracious affections That's his word for feelings or emotions. All gracious affections that are a sweet aroma to Christ are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope, and their joy even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted 
joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I plead with you to perform this psalm in our hearts so that we know how to bear the weight of our failures well. Help us to learn from David and from you. Help our thinking and our feeling to be awakened and carried and shaped by this psalm. Humble us, O God, that in due season we may be raised up. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.